This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got another special guest for you on the podcast. It's actually two guests. So you're getting Eddie and Andrea Gallagher. So if the name Eddie Gallagher sounds familiar, it's probably because you heard his name in the news over the last couple of years. But Eddie is a retired Navy SEAL, but his retirement wasn't quite the one that he had in his mind and not by any stretch of the imagination what him and his wife and his family thought they were going to go through because towards the end of his tenure as a Navy SEAL, this guy was maligned and drug through the mud and also accused of murder. He actually went on trial for his life based on baseless accusations, really, from members of his own platoon, right? So President Trump got involved. A lot of people got involved. But guys, this should have hit a lot of your timelines. And I know a lot of you follow him and some of the people that were kind of supporting him during this time on Instagram or on Facebook or something like that. But it was an absolutely crazy period of time. To, to see how he and his wife, Andrea, who we talked to today, to see how they responded during these times, to see how their family responded, but also to see what the military tried to do, the U.S. military that he served for almost 20 years, to see what the United States government tried to do to bury this Navy SEAL. So he wrote a book about it. He and his wife did, and there were some other contributors. It's called The Man in the Arena, From Fighting ISIS to Fighting for My Freedom. And that comes out today. The the list as of the listening of this podcast. If you're listening to it on time, it comes out today. You should definitely go out and get it because we can't get into a lot of the detail that that this book gives you because this book details not only the things that went on during the trial, prior to, during, and after, but also his time of deployment. It also talks about his, in, his relationship with Andrea and kind of all the stuff that goes in there. We spend a lot of time talking about the book and we spend a lot of time talking about what comes through it. Guys, it's incredible because even after all of this, this guy has a tremendous amount of faith in God and Jesus and, and also in the United States military. And even as you're reading through this book or listening to the story that he went through, it's kind of hard sometimes to think that someone can have that amount of faith in those things, right? But it was a wonderful interview. I think it's great that we got a chance to talk to both of them because we got to see both sides of the same coin because they were obviously one was experiencing it from inside a prison cell and the other one was experiencing it on the outside trying to fight for her husband and all those different things. But it was a great, great interview. I really enjoyed my time with them, but I won't keep them from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Eddie and Andrea Gallagher, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hi, thanks for yeah, having us. Thanks for having us on. I'm very happy to have you both on. And if it's okay with you guys, we're going to skip past most of the questions that you're going to get asked a lot. So, um, Eddie, I don't really care if Bud's was cold, wet, and sandy. I assume that it was. Yeah. Andrea, I know it was hard when he was off on deployment and you were having to deal with the kids. So if it's okay with you guys, can we skip uh, to some of the better questions? Please. please, please. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. So today we're going to spend most of our time talking about a, the book that you guys are releasing. And if you're listening to this on time, guys, this book is now out there, ready for you to go and get it. It's called The Man in the arena from fighting ISIS to fighting for my freedom. And so the thing about this book is there's so much detail in this book. And so I can't possibly get the amount of detail into the time that I have with you today on this interview. So you guys are just going to have to go out there and get the book yourself. It is well worth the read. It's refreshing in a lot of the ways because it, it gets into y'all's relationship and how you met. It also gets into what your different deployments were like, but you have a lot of contributors that wrote individual chapters, you know, from people that you were deployed with to friends of yours, to family members, to even your kids. So I, I thought that was a refreshing way to do it. But again, it's impossible to do it justice here. You got to go buy the book. But I kind of have a two-part first question for you just to kind of get in briefly. Yeah. Why write a book 
about seemingly the most trying time in both of your lives. I mean, most people would want to maybe like, you know, file that away and never talk about it again, never, never even see anything about that ever again. So why write a book about that time period in your lives? And then also why name it the man in the arena? Uh, so the reason, I mean, we wrote the book, you know, after the trial or even after I retired, uh, you know, we could have made two decisions. One is to just slink away and go away into civilian life and try and, you know, start over or do something and sort of sweep everything that happened to us under the rug. And uh, that's not who we are. So we, we stood up and we're like, we want to put the truth out about what happened over the past, you know, those, those two years. Uh, Cause there was a lot, a lot of injustice, uh, a lot of corruption, but then, you know, what my wife, what Andrea and my brother did is beyond like amazing to me. I mean, they, they took on the media and the United States government and won you know, uh, keep them at their own game. So, I mean, I wanted to highlight exactly what those two did, plus highlight everybody else that got behind us during that time. I mean, people who stood up and went against the grain because the narrative at that time was I was a psychopath and that I was a warmonger and that I'm a bad mm -hmm. person. But there was people who saw through all that BS and stood by our side. And I really wanted to highlight all of that because... I mean, during a trying time like that, I mean, those little things that people do to, you know, support us were huge, uh, and that really helped us get through. Um, and I also wanted to highlight the faith aspect as well, because I mean, that's the, that is the one, the main reason that we were able to get through all of that stressful uh, and chaotic time was, you know, God was with us and, you know, was watching over us the whole time and we, we leaned on him on everything. So, yeah, we're certainly going to get a lot into the faith element of the book, but also just all the details surrounding the trial, which you talked about there just briefly. But this is a question really for both of you. One thing that was interesting, I'll say that kind of caught me off guard and caught me by surprise. And we talked about this a little bit off air, but it was just how raw and forthright both of you wrote while you were doing this, because it didn't seem like there was any concern for someone might get offended if I say blank, or I, I may not come off the right way if I say it in this way. It just sounded like you were talking. And so I guess just even briefly before we really get into the contents of the book, why be so raw and forthright? Not why try to not, you know, kind of whitewash it or button things up a little more? Well, if anyone knows us, they know that you know, what you see is what you get. So we were definitely scrutinized and judged in the public eye by a lot of people who have no idea who we are, what he's done. And I'll go back to your first question. The man in the arena has been definitely something that has always been a very meaningful, um, you know, I think thing in, in the context of him going to war and him fighting and him being in the arena for the last 20 years. But we definitely felt like it exemplified that, that we were judged. We were basically, you know, he was hung out to dry. He was crucified by his own command and, you know, just like cast aside and discarded after 20 years of service. And so I felt like there's a lot of undertones that really exemplified that speech about, you know, it's not the critic who counts. And we have a ton of critics, but we also have a ton of, of amazing supporters. So it was really important for us to highlight all of those things. And I think that that's, um, yeah. And then as far as like the way the book was written, uh, yeah. you know, it's uh, Andy Simmons, who was the ghostwriter. Uh, we definitely um, had some bumps in the road along with writing the book because I think we, Andrew and I wanted to be transparent and raw. Mm -hmm. and be like, this is who we are. 
And the one thing, like after being smeared in the media for mm-hmm. the blessing that comes out of that is like, you don't, you care. know, I don't, yeah. I don't give a shit what people think anymore. I'm like, this is yeah. me. And I want it to be like, I'm not a perfect human being. I, you know, make mistakes just like everybody else, but here is everything, uh, which is why we also put all the QR codes in the book, you know, so people mm-hmm. can look at all the NCIS mm-hmm. interviews of all the trial transcripts. So that, it's like, we're not making this up. This stuff actually happened. And then you can make your judgment at the end of the book. Right. And that was encouraging for me because whenever I would go to the QR codes, because you don't really see that in a lot of books, you'll see people make these claims or talk about something that happened all the while knowing that 99.9% of the people are never going to go look that up. It's like people in church, the pastor could say anything. He could misquote scripture and people aren't paying attention. They're going to be caught asleep. And so you made sure that that wasn't really the case. And I keep saying we're going to get to the book, but one question before we even get to the book, because I have to remember every time I talk to somebody that served us in the U.S. military, I'm always curious as to why, because I grew up in Lawton, Fort Sill. It was something that I was around my entire life, but I kind of went the athletic leadership route. I didn't go the military route. It's something that I still kind of, you know, regret even to this day, even though my life has kind of worked out in the way that it did. But for you individually, why did you choose to one, just go into the United States military, but then specifically what appealed to you about the Navy SEALs? Uh, So I I grew up a military brat. My dad was in the army. Uh, He was retired Lieutenant Colonel. So uh, I moved around every two years on living on army bases. Uh, until high school. Um, and then, you know, my dad got out and I spent about four years, you know, living the, living the civilian life as a uh, military child. And I think it's just one of those things I was, I was drawn to it. I have a pretty strong uh, military history in my family. Uh, most, most of them are in the Navy. Um, and you know, I think I just wanted, I wanted to serve my country at the same time. I wasn't, uh, <laughs> the life I was leading like a year after high school, I, I wasn't going nowhere fast. So I, I knew I had to go do something. Um, and, you know, I grew up watching, you know, the, the, uh, what was it the movies for guys who like movies, like the eighties movies, <laughs> yeah. you know, Die Hard right. and Navy Seals and Predator and that, that type of, you know, life just appealed to me. Uh, I didn't know what exactly I was getting into, you know, all I saw was the movies and I was like, Oh, this looks awesome. But that's definitely something that I wanted to do, uh, was be a commando of some sort. Yeah. And so obviously you started out in the Marine Corps and then eventually made your way over to the Navy SEALs. But I do want to go ahead and dive into the book and we will kind of like take the listeners along on the journey with you as much as we can and try to give as much detail and we'll get into some of the charges and everything like that. But your life really changed on September the 11th, aptly, uh, 2018. So Eddie, you were yanked out of a traumatic brain injury clinic and in the middle of being treated, you were arrested, you were taken to the brig, and you weren't even given so much as the courtesy of an explanation as to why you were being arrested, for what, when you would potentially be getting out, if anything. You yeah. didn't even know what you were being charged with, right? And you thought that, hey, this is a big mistake. Perhaps they have the wrong guy, you know, any number of things. But f- give us a little bit of context to both of you as to kind of what that time period was like. Because obviously you were, you were literally jerked out of a doctor's appointment and then put into jail. So what was that like for you guys? Um. You want me to start off on me? Yeah, go ahead. All right. <laughs> uh, you know that that time it was we were it was already pretty stressful because you know right before they had yanked me out of that TBI clinic uh, about I'd say a month before that they raided our house uh, pulled our kids out at gunpoint um, so the the escalation of everything had had already happened and we were sort of in this weird time where I, I moved my family out to Florida and then came back to California to pretty much geobash until my retirement. Um, but you know, at that time we still had faith in it, that somebody was an adult was going to step in the room and see what was happening. They're like, why are you guys, yeah. you know, persecuting 
this family or, you know, this individual without any evidence. Um, and little did we know, you know, that it was just escalate even more. They came and, uh, you know, NCIS actually wanted to come and do a raid on the TBI clinic like they had done in my house. Uh, but my command, I guess, told them that they would go arrest me um, because of how they handled my kids uh, prior. Uh, but yeah, they, you know, when they came and got me, there was no explanation, like you said. Uh, and I was sort of, I, I was definitely frustrated. Um, again, there was a lot of, there was a lot of uh, moments during all this where I had, I had, I could have made two choices, which is I could have sat there and fought back right away when they were trying mm-hmm. to handcuff me um, and threw a fit. But, you know, I don't know, you know, it's again, God was watching over me and pretty much told me to like remain calm, like let, let this play out. Um, and, you know, that's what we did. But of course it just kept getting worse and worse. Right. Uh, but there's nothing, you know, once, once you're in the brig or one, there's nothing you can do. Like they have the, the deck is stacked against you. Um, and the, the deck is stacked against you. And, mm-hmm. you know, the only reason that the word got out was because of Andrea. Yeah. And what people will understand when they get the book is um, the context of where this started from and Mm -hmm. where it ended up, even at that point about him getting taken out of the TBI um, clinic on September 11th. I mean, where this started out, like the petty complaints, the juvenile grievances, like all of those things, um, it not in a million years would you think that things like that at the end of a deployment where everyone's at their wits end, they're ready to come home. I mean, it happens every deployment. So this was, this was nothing new. The thing that was new was he was in a leadership position. It was a very high op tempo. They were tasked with clearing Mosul. They did it in half the time because of his work ethic. Um, And the backstory that he kind of goes into really highlights that his time in service with the Marines, so he's a Navy corpsman, which then the Marines don't have their own corpsmen, so they outsource mm-hmm. from the Navy. His upbringing in the Marines really lended to, he was put under a MARSOC command, is that correct? Yeah, we fell under MARSOC. So, you know, he fit in perfectly because, like, that was where he came from. This mission, and he'll, he goes into it in the book, it was not a stereotypical SEAL mission, which I think right. was the start of the disgruntled nature of, like, why are we doing this? And so there was a lot of context that no one ever had the ability to trace all through, even though I was fighting after um, I decided to come out with everything that was really happening. We were well a year into this. Right. Um, so the the book is really cool because it kind of gives the arc of where it started, how the heck did we get here? And then everything thereafter. So it, it's pretty incredible looking back. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty difficult to hash back through it and see it all kind of, and and go through those things. It was difficult for both of us at times, um, to address certain things that had happened, that had happened to our children, our family. He mentioned the home raid. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot in there that people will be, I think, shocked to read. Well, in, in preparation for this interview, I couldn't think of a nice way to bring up the home raid that NCIS did, pulling your kids out in their underwear, like going through their devices, literally like cowards waiting, knowing, like knowing that Eddie, you were gone and waiting until you left Andrea, right? Even if you can't prove that they waited, it, it would seem the types of slimy guys that were a part of this, that that's exactly what they did to be untrained and to yeah. point 
these weapons at the faces of your children. Like, again, I, as a new father myself, I was losing my mind for you. So I didn't want to kind of bring that up. I didn't need you punching the the camera because we need the camera to work for the remainder of this interview. But I do want to kind of get into a a section for, for you, Andrea, because you, you kind of made it clear at some point that, that this was not going to be working out for the long term because nobody was going to be writing in and saving you, right? That it became very apparent because you were confined to the brig, Eddie, during the time leading up to your trial. But I want to read this quote from the book here. It's from Andrea. We couldn't depend on Eddie's command for help. I began to realize how alone we were, that we'd have to fight this battle ourselves. I vowed to myself then and there that I would stop at nothing until justice was delivered. I would not let my husband go down without a fight. I would not sit by idly while Eddie was wrongly incarcerated. Following our strong Christian faith, we turned the other cheek for the better part of a year while lies and accusations were loosely thrown around. My heart breaking, I thought of Eddie sitting powerless in his prison cell, unable to fight back. I knew I had to fight for him, for our family, even if at the time I didn't know what tactics to employ. I only knew that it was time to go on the offensive. Now, I find that quote to be interesting for a few reasons, because Eddie, you talk about in the book how what you were doing in Mosul is you were try you were basically employed to be a glorified defensive force. And you even said explicitly, the Navy SEALs are not a defensive force. You're an offensive force, right? And then you basically described this the way that you do, Andrea. And as I was reading the book, you reminded me of some other gangster women we've had on this podcast, like, you know, Michelle Black and Holly McKay and Taya Kyle and Lila Rose. But take me through that mindset when that realization was, is like, there's nobody coming in to save us right now. It's just us. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it's hard to describe, but like, so I have a, I have a very deep faith and I'm, you know, a biblical Christian. I've read all the stories of people rising up and situations presenting themselves and then someone just meeting that. And I feel like that's the only way I can really do it justice is it was an everyday waking moment, like fire inside that I felt that very assured. And I even had moments where when he was incarcerated, I felt so strongly that this was all happening for a reason. I never doubted God. I never doubted, although it was, it was horrific what, what we were going through. I just had this underlying sense of peace and assurance that it was happening for a bigger purpose and it was happening to help us help other people. So Um, ironically, one of the verses that, um, I was listening to on a podcast the day that Eddie got taken was about, um, the story of Joseph. And so Joseph was, um, you know, basically plotted against by his brothers out of jealousy and, um, anger and vengeance. And they threw him in a pit. And then he was taken through all of these series of horrific events. But I, I talk about how without those events, he would not have been elevated to the position that he eventually had. And so there's a very poignant scripture that's, um, you know, the 50-20 rule kind of people refer to it as, which is what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And it was mm-hmm. for the changing of many lives. And so we're, we're living that now, but I am a very, you know, tenacious person by nature. I feel like I was probably, um, you know, he always describes it as like, they awoke like a sleeping giant type of a thing. Yeah. I mean, I've always been this way, but I mean, as a seal wife, I have to say, you kind of, you're in the shadows, right? You're at home, you're caring for the children, you're managing everything. They're off. I mean, he was off fighting the war on terror for the past 20 years. And so it was interesting with the dynamic and the quote that you read, because I really felt that 
he had been serving our country. He had been on the front lines of every major battle since, you know, 9-11 kicked off and even before because he enlisted before 9-11. But I was like, they had strategically put him in a position of helplessness. And mm-hmm. I was like, something inside me was like, this is just not going to happen this way. Like, I know what they want. They want me to sit down, shut up, be it, you know, be a good little girl. And I'm like, it's not going to happen. And I came out guns blazing. And basically we strategically took down like, you know, every single lie accusation. I knew that we would eventually get proven innocent at trial, but I could not have ever imagined the onslaught of the media the government, the full weight of his mm. command coming against us basically just to put him out to dry because they're really more concerned about protecting the institution than they are the warfighter. And for me, I don't care about their institution. I care about my husband. I care about the father mm. of my children. He's my best friend. So yes, I hope that people can take away from it. You have to, at some point, stand up and fight. We're seeing it at our country every day. If you just you know, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything in this day and age. And I feel like, I hope the encouragement comes through that my love for him is what drove me to do what I did. My faith is what undergirded all of it. So I hope that's what people can take away. But yeah, it was a daily grind, just like, you know, the only easy day was yesterday to, for him. Through, right. I mean, with this trial, with this course of events it was that was the only easy day was yesterday every day was a new set of headaches and trials and things coming against us and we'd have a we'd have a small win and then three steps back so mm-hmm. the book really highlights that it was pretty much an onslaught that our family yep. faced and thank god for my brother Sean yeah. uh, my brother-in-law his brother Sean there was just so many God ordained people that came into our lives and there were some vipers that came in. We had a horrible, corrupt um, legal team at the beginning. Right. We had a corrupt nonprofit that tried to take advantage of us. We highlight all that in the book. And then we really just at the 11th hour kicked everyone out, repositioned and we got the dream team in and fought right up until we got to the trial to get everything kind of set up and then eventually prove his innocence. Well, and it certainly came through in the writing of the book, your your faith in God, your love for Eddie, but also your desire to really get to bedrock on truth. Uh, and now we're going to go ahead and get into the charges. And again, I'm going to say this a million times in this interview. There's no way we can give you know the, the requisite amount of detail needed. That's why you have to get the book. But there were charges that were brought against you, Eddie, by the military based on accusations. That is essentially what it was based on. There was no physical evidence of anything, even though they threatened that there was physical evidence. And the accusations came from a group that you aptly titled the Mean Girls. Okay, yeah. so uh, one of the charges that was brought up uh, you know, that you were charged with was for murder. Uh, the murder of a prisoner of war, which does carry a life sentence with it. So in, in the in the best way that you can give us the SparkNote version, who were the Mean Girls that made these accusations and what did they allege that you did? So basically... I'll try to summarize as best I can. You know, I, I took over this platoon uh, in 2016 and uh, didn't didn't know any of them uh, except for maybe one or two. Uh, but, you know, took it over. I was the platoon chief, which is the you know senior enlisted leader of the platoon. And uh, from the get go, uh, I came in pretty I wouldn't even say hot and heavy, but I was like, you know, I these are my expectations. I expect mm-hmm. us to be the best platoon here. Um, I think their prior leadership was completely opposite. Uh, was more just, hey, let's just get the job, you know, done, but you know, whatever way we can. They're very lenient, uh, which is why they, they they didn't have very good remarks coming out of that that prior platoon. Uh, so when I came in and sort of established uh, 
and I wouldn't even say it's stringent training, just this is, you know, training, which is what we're supposed to do. Uh, a couple of the guys right away, you know, didn't, didn't like me, didn't like the fact that I came in that way. Um, it was very hidden. Um, all this came out later on, but, uh, these two individuals, you know, it's uh, Dalton Tolbert and Dylan DeLay who are in the book, uh, right off the bat, didn't like me. And then throughout the course of, uh, workup, which is our training before we deploy, and then also deployment, they slowly started to spread their little toxic narrative that, you know, I was, you know, a bad leader and this and this, and they, they managed to grab one or two guys on board. Um, and that's, I think that's a big misconception that was put out in the media as well is, you know, the whole time they're like, Oh, his whole platoon turned on him, this whole mm -hmm. platoon. And really it was three or four guys. Um, and they managed to get like a, maybe a strap hanger on there. But in the end, those guys that ended up taking the stand, only one person out of all of them said, Oh, I saw him stab the individual. The rest of them backtracked on everything. They were like, Oh, I wasn't there, which I knew was going to happen uh, mm -hmm. because they were blatantly lying. But yeah, these individuals, you know, after deployment, um, it was a very chaotic deployment. Uh, it was, you know, it was rough, but I mean, to me, it was one of the better deployments I've been on, um, a, lot of, a lot of work. But I think some of these guys, it got to them. Uh, and you, and it's and like Andrea said before, it's natural for guys to be disgruntled, you know, six to seven months after deployment, they want to go home. Um, and usually they, they do turn and blame leadership for certain problems. Um, but these guys kept it going when we got back. They, they did not go decompress. You know, they refused to move on with their careers. And they were almost, it's almost like little children or, you know, like we said, mean girls. Like they were making these heady accusations to the command, which the command was like, okay, where's the proof? Or, well, that's not really something that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And they're like, if you guys don't have a legitimate complaint, like, then move on. And so that's, you know, four or five months later, they come out with, oh, well, now he stabbed a prisoner. Um, mm. And, you know, all the text messages that came out during trial and all the evidence showed them conspiring during that four to five months. Like, hey, we need to get our story straight. Let's get this watertight, you know, so that nobody can poke holes in it. I mean, it was all right there. It's like complete conspiracy. Um, but the unfortunate fact is, you know, once they came out and said, oh, this, you know, he stabbed a prisoner and they lied and said that they had it on video. Um, that, I think that was like a determining factor for the command to just then pluck me out of my, uh, senior enlisted position and throw me away in an office because of that threat. Um, I'm not making an excuse for the command because they could have asked to see the video, but they didn't. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that was like the, the start of it. And then once the NCIS agent Joel Rapinski got involved, that's when it really took off. Yeah. Um, this guy came in and pretty much just fed these guys like, that he fed them with uh, enough um, yeah. confidence, you know, gave them enough confidence to keep, you know, keep this BS going. And then this guy also came in with a prosecution of his own. You know, he wanted to bag a Navy SEAL, right. make a career out of himself. So, I mean, that's where it it really got crazy. Yeah. Um, and there was no getting off that track. Well, and that's the thing that was kind of weird for me is it seemed like. You know, when you're caught in a lie and you just make the lie worse, that it seemed as elementary as that. Like it went from, okay, Skittles went missing from a care package to, oh, he murdered a guy that, that, you know, it, 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 it still bothered me the whole time that they were so worried about this ISIS combatant that was literally trying to chop y'all's heads off seven seconds before that. And then, you know, y'all got the jump on him, but I guess I'm a bigot if I point that out. So, so let's digress just a little bit, but there was, yeah, yeah. 
Let's yeah. go. I don't want to get canceled from my own show. Um, so there was a little drama leading up to the trial. You, you guys talked about it. There was bad representation from your lawyers. They were either being lazy or they were being, you know, intentionally vague with you and they, they weren't really moving at the pace that you wanted. There was a nonprofit that was screwing around with you guys. There was also a lot of media malfeasance, right? Because at any point, these media members that were being leaked this information, they could have been like, hey, uh, can you show me the video, this alleged video that shows this thing? So there was a lot of malfeasance going on. But then there was obviously this conservative, conservative effort from the U.S. military and the government to try and take you out, right? To bag a Navy SEAL. And so I, I guess for me, for the both of you, after almost 20 years of service as a Marine and as a Navy SEAL, the government that you were representing, like this seems like a Jack Carr novel, like the government you were representing was trying to take you out. What was that like for you two? Uh, for me, it was, I mean, definitely one of the scariest moments of the whole time is uh, when they finally brought me uh, all the evidence they were going to use against me. I was sitting in my jail cell. I mean, it was a big thick binder and on it, it said, you know, Special Operations Chief Gallagher versus the United States. Uh, that right there, you know, looking, just looking at that statement is definitely daunting. And I was like, okay, this is, this is going to be rough. And I mean, and it, you know, the feeling of betrayal was mm -hmm. throughout. Um, I, I still, you know, I mean, I still have a hard time. Like when you start thinking about it, um, you know, you give your blood, sweat and tears to an organization for 20 years, especially during a time of, you know, combat, um, that you're, Literally, like, and I was glad to do it, and I, you know, volunteered for every combat deployment. But the truth is, you're risking your life for your mm -hmm. country, and you know, willingly, and wanting to volunteer to do that over and over, and then to have them all of a sudden just take all of that away and like, nope, you're a bad person. We're gonna hang you out to dry. It was definitely hard to deal with. Um, but at the same time, you know, I tell people this: like, I don't, I don't have any negative like or qualms towards the military you know if there's bad actors in every group you're in and this you know started off and like you said um you made a good point like this just seemed like when a little kid gets caught lying and he keeps keeps lying well mm -hmm. that is the theme through all of this because <laughs> yeah. right. these these little guys you know with mean girls started the lie it got believed by the command mm -hmm. once the command found out that what they were saying wasn't true they refused to back down like, well, we're already, we're already hanging this guy out to dry. We're not going to like admit that we were wrong. And then anybody that got attached to this case, the same thing happened. Yeah. They just were, they were forced to lie to keep this narrative going, which is why the secretary of the Navy got fired, which is why the prosecution got fired for cheating and spying. Like, mm -hmm. was, it was blatantly there. It's like when you're trying to make a case out of lies, you have no choice but to lie yourself mm -hmm. if you want to win. Um, and that's right. what happened. Yeah. What about you, Andrew? Um, so for me, obviously, it was more heartbreaking to watch him having to, you know, go through all of those emotions of betrayal and just dis pure disbelief, really. But um, one of the things I think that was really prominent to me, and it's a theme throughout the book, and I kind of talk about it more because I have a bird's eye view because it was his service. But, you know, we were in uh, we were in the teams for many years. And so I kind of highlight the difference between the guys that I saw initially who he was with and he went through buds with, and he got deployed with initially, which we're all still friends. Unfortunately, we've lost quite a few, um, of those guys that were his brothers, but there's just a huge chasm that I felt like I was seeing in the character and quality of people that were getting pushed through. And there's a lot of agendas, obviously, that get 
shoved down through the military first, even before regular society. So, you know, a lot of the administrations, I mean, he served under multiple administrations and some of the administrations had certain agendas and they, you know, they wanted to really boost the numbers of the SEALs. They wanted to lower the standards. And it's just in any service, if you would lower the standard with a police force or lower the standard with a fire department, Mm -hmm. you're going to get a quality and level of an individual. So I think that that's one important thing that, I really view this as like a changing of the guard and there's so many good guys that are still in um, and and that we know and there's great guys that are still serving. But this just kind of um, for us was really hard because it was not only what we were going through, but it was the end of an era Mm -hmm. for what we had been brought up and what we had been raised up in was a brotherhood. It was a tight knit community. Yes, you'd have differences. I mean, they'd go after, you know, out and after our deployment, I mean, they'd probably, mm. by the end of the day, they'd go in the fight room and punch each other in the face, you know, <laughs> and, and then they'd walk away and be best friends again. I mean, that's yep. the type of thing that we were used to. So seeing this occur was a real shift um, of our upbringing. And I can't express, I think I try my best in the book to, to quantify and categorize the real heartbreak for us was seeing that type of level of degradation of the community. And I feel like there's a lot of an intentionality where you look now and what the, you know, some of it, it's, it's an internal breakdown in these people that are in the levels of power and the commands. Um, and we kind of highlight some of the people that were high up, the Admiral Greens, the Commander mm-hmm. Rosenblums, and we're like, these are the tip of the spear problems. And that's why you're seeing this level of degradation. Um, so we hope that out of it too, not to point fingers for the sake of pointing fingers, but it will be used as an after action report to say, what can we do better? How can we make sure that this doesn't happen again? So I think that was one of our goals too, writing the book was saying, we want the community to get back to what it was. We want the community right. to go back to the bedrock of really what you want when when I'm sending my husband overseas, I want someone that's willing to die and put their life on the line. And that's what we talk about. That was the quality of men and the character. So to have this, it was definitely a very big shakeup for us. Um, but, you know, we've come out of it and we just want to exemplify. Um, we can we think we can get back to that point, hopefully in the community. I know that's what he wants yeah. is to see that again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll certainly, I have some questions for later on to kind of get more into that. Cause I, I want to definitely go into that more, but it's like, you're mourning what happened to you while at the same time mourning the end of an era. Mm-hmm. And you know, some, some people like to romanticize the end of an era, like, Oh, back in my day, it was like this. And today it's just like it was back in their day, yeah. but there does seem to be a definitive dividing line that's occurring right now. And again, uh, I'll save that for a little bit later, but there was a turning point pre-trial and it came from the man that everybody loves to hate right even now donald trump so donald j trump the president got involved in your case and there was a ripple effect from that some positive ripples came from that but also some negative so he took a very public interest obviously andrea and sean were able to get on fox and friends which is as we all know donald trump's favorite show to watch at least while he was it was in office and he took a very public interest in your case he tweeted about it Uh, there was some political maneuvering and it was able to get you released from the brig but the people that were kind of taking care of your next restrictive confinement they wanted to kind of stick it to president trump by making you well you're not in the brig anymore but now you're actually more sequestered than you were before so there was kind of that political rambling and and you know wrangling as it were but then 
the prosecution, as you mentioned earlier, they were caught digitally spying on you guys uh, on the defense team. It was absolutely insane. It's like, of course, you nerds would try to do something like this and get caught like that. But this led to the judge actually releasing you completely from pretrial confinement, right? So no special confinement, no purgatory confinement, no, just out so that you could be with your family and prepare for your trial. You had been confined for up to, I think it was nine months up to that point. So Again, we'll get into the trial in just a second, but what was that like for the two of you when you spent three quarters of a year away from your family, away from your children and your spouse, and then all of a sudden you're out almost because of a technicality? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that day it was de- it was unexpected um, just because up to that point, and there's some things we didn't put, like I didn't put in the book, like there, we had multiple motions hearings, you know, all the time leading up to the trial. And I mean, at these motions hearings, we were calling out the prosecution from day one for leaking information, you know, breaking the, uh, what's the, what's the protective order, the protective order of like all the evidence because the newspapers were putting out articles and we'd see them. Like we go to court, my lawyers would see them and and they'd be like a whole batch of new evidence or new claims against me. And we didn't even have that. So my lawyer's like, we don't have this evidence yet. How do the papers have them? And Every time the prosecution would just smile at us and just be like, no, it's not us. And the judge would be like, okay, well, keep moving on. And this happened multiple times. Mm -hmm. So it was very, uh, you know, even when the the prosecution got caught spying, I mean, it was, that was so egregious, but we had called them out so many times to that point that we were like, yeah, this is, this is the injustice that goes on here. This is the system. Uh, Nothing's going to happen. And in reality, if this happened in civilian world, in a civilian court, they, they would have been thrown in prison. The case would have been thrown out. But of course, mm. the military justice system, their, mm-hmm. their uh, you know, remedy was like, okay, well, we'll just let you out of confinement. Because <laughs> where I was like, well, I shouldn't have been in confinement in the first place. Right. Yeah. That was their remedy. And then their other remedy, which is actually a, uh, helped us, is the judge gave us a certain, to pick out the jury, mm-hmm. he gave us, I think, a couple more uh, strikes to you know strike people off the jury. Um but that was pretty much the remedy. Like, okay, move on. We got a new prosecutor. We're still, you know, coming after you. So it was, uh, it was, and we were, I mean, not, not to say like that day we were definitely, I mean, elated. well, that was a huge win. It was for huge. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I got to like, you know, be out of confinement. We got to go out to dinner, you know, and then I, the big thing is I got to fly home to see my kids for the first time, like right. being confined. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, that was huge, but it was, we were still in the fight at the time. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, the victory was like, okay, let's celebrate. But we still have this mountain ahead of us, which is the trial. Yeah. yeah. And so when we get to the trial, there was, there was so much detail about the trial in the book that it's really hard to encapsulate all the crap that the prosecution was trying to do. But if I could even sum it up and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the prosecution and their witnesses were a complete crap show. Like it was almost like they were playing law, not practicing law. Like it was just an interesting thing, which again, when you don't have the facts at your side, you have to kind of be a little bit, you have to play some shadow games, but it's like, y'all suck at playing shadow games. It's like, how are you this bad at this? But even, even though they were so bad at it, you had to have been concerned that it wasn't going to work out well for you. Um, and again, uh, there were a lot of egregious errors and, you know, I just want to kind of go into to one section of the trial because there was an enormous turning point of the trial. As I was following the case, as it was happening, I was thinking to myself, why are we still here yeah. after this big turning point? Okay. Because petty officer, first class, Corey Scott, 
right? A seal that was with you on the ground that day after being granted immunity prior to his testimony, he said this. And so I'm going to actually read some quotes from the book. So this is your lawyer, Tim, your new lawyer, lawyer who actually knows what he's doing. He doesn't just carry the briefcase. He's questioning Corey. And up to this point, he had been, he had been asking why he used the word suffocate. Right. And he had been asking, well, did this guy suffocate the prisoner? Did this guy suffocate the prisoner? But we'll go into the book here. Did you suffocate him? Yes. And this is Eddie. This is you kind of thinking to yourself, what did this dude just say he killed the terrorist? He said it almost like he was like both a question and a statement. Did I hear him right? I definitely didn't see Corey do that. And I was the, and this was my first time hearing it. I'd assume the terrorist died from his battle wounds. The hellfire missiles were dropped on the building that killed the rest of his ISIS contingent. I figured he'd joined the other 49 souls in that building. It was difficult to maintain a solemn face as Tim asked his next question. How? And then this is his answer. After Chief Gallagher left the scene, I was left there monitoring him, Corey explained. I thought he would die. He was continuing to breathe normally as he had been before. So I held my thumb over his ET tube until he stopped breathing. I remember hearing that when it happened. And as I was reading it again, like in your book, I was like, we're done here. We're we are, we are done here. Why are we here? There's nothing else for us to do. So Take me through what was going on for the both of you at that moment. Because again, even I think the lawyer, I'm trying to remember correctly, the lawyer like leaned over to you, Andrea, at one point to say, I'm so sorry, we couldn't tell you all this before today. But take us through that because that was the hinge point of the entire trial, at least for me. Yeah. So again, there's so many layers. It's kind of hard to just um, synapsize it. But basically that day, when that was occurring, like we were all just dumbfounded. We were like, what is going on here? And that's why in the book I write, like it's, you know, people picture it like, you know, like beautiful courtroom and Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, it's literally was like my cousin Vinny in that courtroom. And it was just like, everything was more ridiculous than the next. And we're like, we thought the same thing. Like, what does this even mean? Um, But, you know, I think that people hearing that on the outside and the way that the media obviously um, put it out, people thought like, oh, this will be the end of it. We really did not feel that way. <laughs> we knew that they were going to keep the cadence, just keep pushing forward. What it did do was they ended up not calling quite a few witnesses because they knew that these people were not going to say what they were being told and threatened to say. So in the book, we talk about um, the witnesses and kind of the way that their their stories and their lives broke down on the stand under cross-examination. Mm-hmm. So we give the people the audio files, we give the people all of it, but it got as crazy as like, and like you said, when you're telling a lie, so what they had to do to cover up, you know, lies was start making up just really egregious stuff. So there was a point where um, one of the guys had said, um, oh, I was in the other tower. Well, how did you know that it was him that was shooting? Because they mm-hmm. made up two false charges about him shooting people indiscriminately. And um, he said, oh, um, vapor trails. That's how I did. I saw. I saw vapor trail. And it's like a bad novel. It really you know, is. Vapor trail. So, so there was so, I, and, and in the end, really what happened was, their level of trying to piece together these lies and the hearsay with, again, zero, zero physical evidence, mm-hmm. nothing. 
it basically started to break down and deteriorate. So that at that point, it was quite a culmination. And I think what Corey did was was very brave. And mm. he took a huge risk because they were going after everybody. They were sending target letters to anybody that did not agree with their narrative. And so the dirty games that were played were really overwhelming. So, I, I mean, it was a huge day for us, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, like she sort of, I explained in the book too, you know, when that was said, I think everybody has this assumption that we were like, that's, that's it. it. And I, yeah. that was like the last thing from my mind. I was like, well, mm-hmm. now what's this going to bring, you know, because I know how these people are. And it, you know, even at the end of the book before they uh, asked the jury to make the verdict, right. Um, they, they sit there and explain them. And this shows exactly where their heads were at. They're like, Hey, we know there's not really enough evidence to get him on murder. But you guys can get him for this aggravated mm-hmm. assault. We can still put him away. Like these are all the other options you have. And I was mm-hmm. like, this this is no longer you know, this case is not is not about justice. It's not about doing the right thing. It's these guys are trying to get a, a win at all costs and they don't care that they're throwing a human being away. Like they they don't look at you that way, which is it was very eye opening and very disgusting to see how these people act. Um, just in the name of careerism. Um, and these are officers. These are all naval officers. And I think what it also highlights, and this is the truth, is how elitist naval officers mm-hmm. think they are. They think they are so above the enlisted, and that's across the board. I mean, yeah. they are taught that at Annapolis, that they, you know, they had, they're up here and we're down here. And it's, I think my case shined a light on it. Like, this is how, and it, you know, it showed my command, like Commander Rosenblum. Admiral Green, they all have this very elitist attitude where it's like, I can do no wrong. Whatever punishment I throw down must be done. Even if there's evidence that comes out that's maybe, you know, I wasn't in the wrong. Um, they refuse to back down and say they made a mistake. Uh, and so, you know, when, once that came out, I knew I was like, this isn't going to, this isn't a changing point. And then, you know, we went out after the courtroom that day and the media was out there. And the first questions they were asking were, uh, well, how can you bring your kids to this court? They're still going to come after you in some way, right? Shift the narrative, baby. Yeah. It, was, it was so blatantly obvious. Which and, we didn't know it was going to happen with Corey's testimony. No. We had no idea. So they were like, how could you bring your kids? And we're like, it, it was just, yeah, really, it just shows that there's just um, a lot of things that occurred and so many injustices that happened. And that's, I think, what people will be able to see is that thread of like, what we were coming up against was insurmountable odds that we did eventually overcome, but it was not easy. And yeah, it was definitely exposed during trial. So having the ability for people to scan through the, the text threads and see everything written out and um, see, uh, listen and hear the NCIS testimony versus their actual trial testimony and their cross-examination. I mean, you can, you can see and hear in that context, like the case falling apart, which is mm-hmm. what we were seeing inside of the courtroom. So we felt confident, but then you'd go on the news and the media would be, they wouldn't even put out big stuff. There was, so it's yeah, crazy. It was like, they were putting out two completely yeah. different days. Right. We come out of court. We're like, that was a big like, win. That was a big victory <laughs> for us. And then the media was like, no, but this, you know, this, right. this. and you're like, did you not, 
just listen to what happened. Yeah. You know? It's all about the narrative. I talk about that all the time on this podcast, whether they're talking about anything that goes on in the news, you have to stick to the narrative at all costs, right? Yeah. So, and, and that's just kind of what you see. And by the way, and this is as a side note, if anyone ever asks you something like, why did you bring your kids to this? Why did you expose them to that? The best way to diffuse that argument is just to ask them, hey, what are my kids' names? Because they're sitting there pretending like they love your kids yeah. more than you do. They don't even know your kids. So yeah, yeah it's not something you ever, ever even need to respond to. So another thing that was interesting from the book, Eddie, is that you and your legal team and, and your whole family, I guess you decided that you weren't going to take the stand yourself, that you weren't going to give a testimony. For for my purposes, I feel like this book is your defense, obviously, that this is your testimony. And so uh, I think it was a good thing that you didn't end up taking the stand, even though I'm sure you probably wanted to. But then we march our way all the way to the verdict. Right. And I'm, I'm sure that right before the verdict was read, you all know what the truth is. Everybody in the room knows what the score is. Right. But then there's still that. But are they going to do something else? Are they going to get me on something else? And so the verdict comes back. And as y'all describe it, it was read super fast and kind of awkward because they threw out several numbers regarding charges, but they, they didn't actually name the charges when they said the numbers. And so essentially what you all heard was not guilty, not guilty, guilty not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And so there was that immediate confusion as to, you know, what the hell, even, you know, the people in your defense team are trying to figure it out. And then all of a sudden there's the realization that the only thing you were being guilty, being charged guilty of is taking a picture with uh, this ISIS fighter after he had died, which again, everyone can have their own opinion about that. But you went from, you know, this desolation to confusion to this extreme elation. So I just want to hear from the both of you what that was like after enduring what you did, all the ups and downs, all the highs and lows, all the craziness. What was it like to finally know that you had been fully exonerated? Um, it was, you know, it's, it's very emotional, very emotional. Uh, thing that happened. I mean, even thinking about it now is it's still, it was a traumatic event because, you know, I went in there. Um, it was probably the scariest moment of my life, like standing up, you know, you're at attention, just waiting for these seven individuals to say whether you're going to go away for life, you know, or be free. Um, and so, you know, as they were reading off, I mean, I I was having like an out of body experience, bro. I was like, my heart was pounding. I really Mm -hmm. wasn't like, you know, listening to everything, but I did hear, you know, the guilty, the not guilty, not guilty. Um, and as soon as my lawyer grabbed me and was like, it's for the picture. It was, yeah, it was like a, um, just like a dump, you know, of like this weight. But then I turned around and saw her and she, you know, everybody in the courtroom was crying, um, hugging mm-hmm. each other. I mean, you had team guys rushing in that were crying. It was, uh, it was definitely a very, um, just a real moment, you know, that's, yeah, we'll, we'll remember it forever for sure. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, even reading it and Andrea, I'd, I'd really like to have your feedback to that as well. Cause you know, Eddie, you're the one you're, you're next in the noose at that point. And then all of a sudden the, the rope gets taken away. But Andrea, that, that was a culmination of a lot, really a lot of work. And that's not why you did it so that you can get the, you know, the biscuit or the cookie at the end. Yeah. But you know, what was that like to know Eddie was coming home and he was staying there? Oh, I mean, it, it felt like the answer to like a million prayers and yeah, lots of hard work, but it felt, you know, justified. Like we knew that there, there, and what we said from the beginning, it's like, how can you make something out of nothing? How can you take nothing and then turn it into something? But they did. And, and we saw that. And so that's where, you know, we always talk about it and we say like, 
it's you can't unsee that right like we saw behind a curtain that we never knew existed we Mm -hmm. had never been put in a situation like that we never would have known what the legal justice system in the military and the ucmj was like and so to go through such like a just egregious violation of his rights and they took away, you know, his constitutional rights, due process, they threw him away. It was like, I feel at the end of it, we really felt somewhat vindicated, even though we still had a ways to go even after the trial. So yeah, it was a surreal moment. It was um, a huge relief and a huge victory for us, but the battle kind of kept raging even after the trial. Yeah. We touched on that a little bit, and we talked mm-hmm. about how just all the way up until he got out, it was really sour grapes. Um, you know that there was there was just so much that so many people had put into crafting and trying to get this narrative and uh, trial pushed forward that it felt like to us that we were still kind of under attack even after we proved his innocence. Um, So we talk about that and we just share, you know, that we've just kept moving forward every day. We try to, you know, honor his service, the people that we've stood side by side with the families that have lost loved ones. And, um, you know, we still love the community, but the book is definitely kind of the culmination of just showing behind this curtain and giving people the true story, because even people that followed us and there's people on social media, they followed us from day one. Mm -hmm there was not a way to really encapsulate every nuance that we were going through. Um, And so this is kind of also for all of those people that fought and stood by our side and believed to say, this is the, what really was happening. And like that, I think for us is really another big culmination. So that day was a huge culmination and a victory for us, but just getting this story out, I think is a huge culmination for us as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think you alluded to it a little bit, but you know, with the sentencing, you got the maximum, which you were kind of expecting. So that was a reduction in rank to E6, forfeiture of pay, and then four months of imprisonment, which you had already served. But you know, the chicanery wasn't over. They they yeah. tried to bump you down to, I think, an E1. They tried to take your trident and then Donald Trump got involved again and, you know, said, hey, screw that. He's keeping his trident, which actually helped a couple of other guys keep their yeah. tridents. But even just briefly, I think it was kind of cool that after all this went down after trial, President Trump, the villain that he is, and Vice President Pence, they actually called you after yeah. the trial. So what was that like to get a call from the president and the VP? Oh, uh, so that was pretty crazy. You know, I, at the time I was uh, going back and forth between Florida and San Diego uh, because we were awaiting them to throw down judgment from the verdict, you know, and they, they were taking their sweet time with it. So I was just going home, spending time with the family, and then going back to work, if you want to call it work, like checking in. Uh, so I, it was one of the times I was flying back and I got a call from my lawyer, Tim Paratori, and he was like, Hey, you know, if you get a weird phone call, pick it up, you know, and I was mm-hmm. like, okay. And so, yeah, when I landed in San Diego, I got a call, it said like Egypt on it. And, uh, it was, uh, the vice president and the president, you know, and they, it was pretty amazing to, I mean, I, I didn't say much. I just sat there and listened to them and just kept saying mm-hmm. thank you. And, you know, I appreciate mm-hmm. everything they did, but the amount of detail that, the president knew about my case and was like going, you know, I can't believe they did this and this, like he had been avidly following it um, mm-hmm. was, I mean, that, that showed a lot to me. Cause I think people are like, Oh, he just got involved as a political stunt or whatever. It's like, no, he genuinely cared about what was going on. Mm-hmm. He genuinely took time and delved into every detail before making any kind of decisions. And, you know, the, the misconception that, happened you know afterwards like everybody's oh i was pardoned 
he didn't pardon me. You know, all he did, you know, when he first got involved was he said, let this man out of prison so he can properly defend himself. Not that I was guilty or not guilty. He just was like, mm-hmm. this guy due process, like, which is what everybody, which is what everybody yep. deserves. Um, but then because he did that, you know, I became a political football then, you know, it was like people that hated Trump now hated me, which, you know, at this, I was like, I'll take that on because, you know, he's doing the right thing. And then yeah. everything after that was, it became like a battle between the United States Navy and the president of the United States. They would make decisions just to throw him a slight or pretty much give the finger to him. And then yeah. it's like, well, if there's one thing we know about the president, it's like, you're not going to outdo his ego. Like he is going to no. like, come right back after that. And it literally was embarrassing, man. Like I was, I was actually talking to my command. Like they were, you know, like they were children. I was like, Hey, do you understand that what you're doing is going, it's not looking good for the community. And they were just blatantly like, we don't care. This is it. Like, this is not about the president, but I was like, well, it is because you guys keep doing this. I mean, it was pretty obvious. Well, that's also the upper brass that we were dealing with. were definitely Obama holdovers and they had a lot of animosity towards even the president, you know, getting involved, but the president was consistently writing wrongs that the command themselves should have been doing. When we got um, the tweet about president Trump saying he should be allowed to be out to defend himself, to be a part of his assisting in his own trial, we had got, at that point gotten over 50 members of Congress to sign on to a letter to get him released. So we had been getting a lot of, you know, grassroots movement, congressional support. So people just think he came out of the woodwork and did this. It was mm-hmm. undergirded by the 50 members of Congress who agreed that what was happening to him was actually a grave injustice. So without the context, I can see how people getting sound bites, news bites, clickbait could just think, oh, he was just acting so impulsively. He was not at all. It was very, very strategically thought out on his part. And um, the president did the right thing when the Navy consistently would not. So we kind of highlight that in the book as well and really show the true trajectory of how things happened, what went down, what it took versus all these little, you know, bits and pieces that people have a lot of miss. There's a lot of mixed miss um, messages, I guess you'd say in the media. And again, um, it's, you know, so many people like he emphasized, think he was pardoned. He was not pardoned. He didn't have to be pardoned. He went to trial. He went through the whole gamut of the trial and there was definitely a lot of misinformation released. So we also are setting the record straight on a lot of that. So if people do the due diligence, they have the ability to look into everything. They have the ability to see everything in front of them. So we hope that that'll also kind of aid with people getting yeah. the story straight. Finally, um, because it did turn into a really politically divisive, um, you know, ping pong match between his story and President Trump. And um, Yeah, I mean, it was to the point where you know, the Navy awarded the prosecutors naval, like naval achievement medals after my trial, after losing the trial and, oh, getting, of and getting caught cheating and spying, they gave them awards. Right. And, and this is like just, a cover I mean, it was That's just to show how, how they were again, like they wanted to fry me and, yeah. and because they couldn't get it done, then they award the prosecutors for, for hey, good job for trying. 
Yeah. Good job. Good effort. Yeah. It's like, you suck so bad at your job. Here's a medal. And so it's like, but that makes perfect sense. And we'll, we'll certainly get more into how kind of that attitude has permeated into the military here in just a little bit, but to kind of put a bow on this whole trial before we move on to some other things about the, about the Navy and about your faith, there, there was a quote from the book that it was a short quote, but I, I highlighted it. Cause I was like, this is going to be something that that's going to come up later, but it was this, I vowed that after all this was over, the command leadership would be held accountable for their lies to this day. They haven't but the fight isn't over. So obviously the whole time I'm reading the book, I'm like, what recourse is there, if any, against these men for blatantly lying, you know, from the members of your platoon to the members of NCIS or anyone else that had their hands in this for the lies. Like, is there anything that you can honestly do to, for like the people that are still in? Yeah. For the, for the people that are still in, for the people that straight up lied to you, like, is there any recourse for you? You know, there's the, my recourse is putting out the book and, it's like, here, here's what happened. And that's the thing. Like I, here's all of your NCIS interviews. Here's your trial audio. Here's, here's where you guys all lied. And here's your faces. Like I'm going to hold you accountable regardless. But no, the answer is the military. The military would not. No, we filed IG investigations. Oh, sorry. I misunderstood. Yeah, no, I mean, well, but that is true. That's why we wrote the book as well, because even yeah. after the trial, we filed IG investigations against them. And the, the Navy was like, nope, we're all good here. It looks like we did everything right. And we, you know, at that yeah. point, we knew um, that we had to do something. So we're still currently in a lawsuit with the Navy. Yeah. Um, okay. We're currently still in a lawsuit with the reporter from the New York Times, David Phillips, who literally has made a career off of writing the coattails and contextualizing him as a warmonger. And it, it, there's just so much bad motivation um, that came out after this. So we're fighting that battle. We're also fighting with our former legal team. Right after he was acquitted, they filed a lawsuit against us for a million dollars, which I don't I don't know where that figure came from. Um, but so we filed a countersuit against those lawyers, um, Colby Vokey, Phil Stackhouse, and the corrupt nonprofit, which is United American Patriots. So there is a lot that we have personally taken on to try to do to not only set the record straight, but hold people accountable. But the short answer is no, no one was held accountable. All of the people involved were basically promoted. Yeah, in fact, the opposite happened. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) they were awarded promoted and Tom Tom McNeil, who was one of the junior officers that uh, testified against me. So, if you watch his first NCIS interview, he doesn't say a word. He's like, "I don't, I don't know nothing. I don't have any information." Blah blah blah. And then all of a sudden, at my Article Thirty Two, he comes out with a proper with like a laundry list of. Agreed because they got to him because the command went sure. to him and was like, Hey, get on board and we'll we'll get you a promotion. And he was, I mean, this guy went on stand and said that he had taken pictures of dead bodies, he had done this, you know, all these things, but he had immunity. And then they promoted him to an OIC position on the east coast, which I found out he got fired from anyways because his you can't hide your true character and the guys yeah. didn't like him. And if that's there, you go, think that's the thing, you know, I was like, The community can you know keep these guys cover and try out. and cover it up. The guys know in the community. The, yeah. I mean, you can sniff out a you know, a little rat or like mm-hmm. like this guy doesn't belong. And that's what's happening. They can sit there and try and parade these guys around like they're heroes, like which is crazy. But I mean, I get phone calls all the time from guys in the community. They're like, dude, I don't know why they still do this. Why are they still going on with the agenda? But you know, it's that uh and I always say it's like this they have the never quit attitude as well, just just in, <laughs> in the a wrong, very negative in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that was funny. As I was reading through, I, it may have been the same guy you're referring to, but this guy was about to go to DevGrew. He wasn't there yet. And he's already talking crap on the guys in DevGrew. It's oh, like, yeah. bro, 
you, you, of all the people on the planet to not talk trash about like that group, you're going to talk trash about that group. So it was just astonishing to me that something like that would happen. Well, but we made sure, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. We made sure no, go write certain things during the trial. So, I mean, there's that point where I wanted my lawyer to read that text message because yep. he was over at a uh, development group at the time and he was already accusing them of war crimes and hadn't deported them. I'm like, this is the type of individual yeah. who I've been telling everybody about, like, this dude can't be trusted. He's not a good person. But then also you have Josh Brenz. You know, we highlighted the fact that he's in there calling Marcus Luttrell a coward and a liar. And this guy was probably in fifth grade when Red Wings happened. You know, it's like mm. he's this is the type of like entitled attitude where they have no respect for the guys that came before them. They have no respect for what guys have been doing the past 20 years. It's all about them. And, you know, they'll they'll say whatever and do whatever to take better men than them down. Yeah. Well, let me actually uh, transition into that. And then I, I, I do want to make sure that we, we talk a little bit more about the faith element, but I, the, one of the undertones of this entire book was the changing nature of the seals, which we've already talked about. So I do want to go ahead and read this quote from your book here and then get, get your comments on it. Now, when new Navy seals receive their tridents, it's basically a coronation. As I described earlier, Naval Special Warfare allows all these nonprofit foundations to give the command millions of dollars for access to these new seals and take them out to dinner and golf. Freshly pinned seals are told how special they are by guest speakers at gala events where they're wined and dined by foundation executives before ever stepping foot into a team room, let alone a battlefield. I don't disagree that there is something special about attaining the Trident, but to inflate these men's egos and pump them up by telling them how great they are before they even get to a team is a disservice to them and the community. Recently, I've watched experienced SEALs go to disciplinary review boards for merely tapping the Trident into someone's chest. We have officially conformed into a softer, gentler Navy. In our ethos, there is a statement that says, I I do not advertise the nature of my work nor seek recognition for my actions. Don't get me started on the gender neutral pronoun changes to the ethos by someone you've already been introduced to and will get to know well in this book, Admiral Colin Green. Common men with uncommon desire to succeed has since been changed to common citizens with uncommon desire to succeed, as well as striking any other reference to men or brotherhood. The way the command treats these men now contradicts that statement. I don't blame the new guys. They're a product of the institutional environment set up by the upper brass. But I do believe that this is why a sense of entitlement has crept into the community and is eating it from within. And quite possibly why the men who conspired against me felt like they had the right to do so. So here's the deal for me. As a patriotic American and as a competitor, I love that America wins. I love that we have the best fighting forces, right? I try to support uh, all these fighting forces in whatever way I can as a civvy. You know, I do the MRF every year. I give money to these organizations that, you know, support support individuals like yourselves or to, in, you know, individuals that have maybe lost mom and dad to, to war and now the kids are left behind. I'm doing all those different things. But when I read this, I, I want y'all to be the, the, the most violent and best at war possible. I don't care about the ribbons. I don't care about the awards. And one thing that I kept thinking was, as I was reading this book for the guys that were kind of going against you is how did these guys have the mental fortitude to get through buds? These are guys that are, that are getting so worried about personal slights or being called a pussy or like, you know, stuff that should get you fired up. It's like reach down the front of your pants and make sure you still have a pair. Why are you getting so, so offended by this? So talk to me a little bit about the changes that you're seeing in the SEAL community. And as an American, as a civilian, is there something that I should be worried about that these are the things that our best fighting force or one of our better fighting forces is talking about? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, we said it before, like, or Andrea said it, where, you know, the social experiments that happen with this country, they trickle into the military first, right? And so 
that during the Obama administration, when they wanted to grow the force to 500, um, they want to make 500 more seals, which is, I think it was like in a three or four year time frame. That's a lot. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you were only getting, you know, uh, 70 a year or maybe a little bit more than that, probably, but it's still, it's a lot. So in order for them to grow that number, they had to, you know, lower the standards um, a little bit. I mean, cause I was an instructor during that time and they would, we, our classes would be three times as big as normal. We didn't have all the instructor staff to, you know, handle a class that big. So of course there's going to be onesie twosies that slip through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, with classes that big, it, those onesie twosies turn into, you know, four or five people that slip through the cracks. So you have seven classes a year. That's, five people that slip through that 35 seals that don't belong every year. Mm-hmm. So that happened over a you know, three or four year period of time. And, you know, you could see the difference uh, when, with these guys, you know, especially when they're trying to grow the force. And like I said, you go to these, um, the, where they were getting their tridents and it was, com- it was just completely different from when we received our tridents, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it was only seals. You, they brought you into a room. It was like, Hey, you know, congratulations, but you ain't shit. Like get ready to go to a team where you have to earn this every day. Now it's like, I feel like they put it out like, Oh, you guys are the best. They really like pump these guys up. And, and like I said in the book, it's not the guy's fault. It's the leadership, you know, they're, it's the high upper brass that, you know, sits there and lifts these guys up, telling them they're they're the best things since sliced bread. Um, and then when these guys show up to a platoon with this like entitled attitude, like I just got told I was the best. And when we smack them back down, I'm like, no, we're getting in trouble for smacking them back down mm-hmm. and being putting them in their place. Um, but you see it in yeah. the entirety of every single like sphere of the community. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's nursing or whatever, it's like this is happening and these pervasive attitudes are really destroying the fabric of what made America great. And that's it's too bad that it's happening in the special operations community because unlike a lot of workplaces, theirs is life and death. So you do not have the ability for people to be overly sensitive or, you know, making something out of nothing when it's like them not being on their A game could cause someone to get killed. And Mm -hmm. so that's where I think it's a redefining of, like he said, it's a softer, gentler type of a community. But since when do we want our special operators or Navy SEALs for that matters to be Boy Scouts? But that's what they want. And you've had leaders and higher ups saying that they have specifically made that a mandate. That's what they want. And it's like, we definitely, you know, feel strongly that that's, that's going to be a big letdown if God forbid we have another nine 11 and, you know, the fighting force is, you know, only as good as the leadership and what we've seen is a downtrend and, you know, the readiness. So I'm hoping that maybe through this, there could be more examination of, you know, maybe what we should be doing and focusing on is getting to be the highest state of readiness versus kind of lowering standards, making excuses and giving everyone trophies. Yeah. I think I used the word earlier, violent. I I meant lethal. Like I I want y'all to be the the most lethal fighting force possible. Um, and so, so for me, I I don't care about diversity in the military. I don't, I don't care about uh, diversity of ideas. I don't care about diversity of haircuts. I care about lethality because you are the guys that are entering the breach to protect my butt and keep my family safe. Cause I don't have to worry about someone from another country coming into my community, into my gated community and trying to take me out because you guys are there on the front lines. And a a big element of all this, as you've mentioned several times is that the element of faith, 
faith that both of you had during this entire setup. And so I'm going to read a section here from the book. And guys, listening to this, if you hate hearing me read out loud, I'm so sorry. This is going to be a decent chunk, but this is one of my favorite parts of the book here. So here we go. After you found out that, or sorry, this was after you found out that the kids, uh, or that you weren't going to be able to go home. I think you just got off the phone with Ryan and Ryan was, you know, he thought you were coming home and now daddy's not coming home. I think he was seven or eight at the time. So pretty brutal, but we'll get into the quote here. And this is from Andrea. This is Andrea. This is you talking to Eddie. I need you to listen to me very closely. Andrea said for years now, you've left us more times than I can count to do this job. You put this job before our family and held the teams on a pedestal above all else. The kids and I have followed you through this because you always told us that you were doing uh, what you were doing was for a righteous cause. We entrusted you when you said this. Now I need you to trust me when I tell you this. It's only us. The command is not behind you. The command is against you. They are hanging you out to dry. No one is coming to help. I need you to let go of the notion that the institution you've given every ounce of your being to is coming to your aid. They're not. Andrea's words stung. It was hurtful to hear, but I knew she spoke the truth. Foolishly, I had still been holding out faith that my command would support me and rectify the situation. This was supposed to be a brotherhood, a brotherhood that I'd sacrificed everything for over the past 19 years. I'd wrongly assumed the protection and support would be reciprocated. That conversation with Andrea as was a much-needed come-to-Jesus moment that forced me to see reality. I hung up the phone, went back to my cell, sat on my bed for five minutes. Then I got on my hands and knees, and I spoke out loud to God. I am relinquishing all control of the situation to you, I told him. You have always looked out for my best interests, kept me safe, and blessed me with a wonderful career and family. I'm giving you 100% of myself. Whatever happens, happens. If you deem it necessary for me to go away for life, then so be it. If not, I have faith that you will show me, my family, and my legal team a path out of this. I got to my feet, buzzed the button to open my cell door. By the time I stepped back into the pod, I felt like the weight of the world had been lifted from my shoulders. While I'd always been a practicing Christian, my faith had been rooted in convenience. It took a crisis for me to fully give myself over to Jesus. From that day forward, I left myself in God's capable hands, and I haven't looked back. So there's a lot there, Eddie, that I think most people would recognize in themselves. You know, we kind of live in a culture where it's God when he's convenient, but not when he's not kind of a thing. But take me through being kind of a Christian in name only up to that point, but now being in jail, being on your hands and knees, crying out to God, basically saying, it's all you, it's not about me. Take me through that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, I really didn't, you don't, for me, at least, I really didn't know I was a Christian in name only until you get put in a situation like this, right? So you, you, through my career, you know, I was a practicing Christian. We go to church every Sunday. She is definitely a thousand times more hardcore than I was. And she was always trying to put me on the, always never stopped trying to put me on the right path. Uh, (laughs) Just nudge you, nudge you onto the right path, right? Just nudges. (laughs) But, you know, like I, I always had, like if I was having issues, you know, I didn't go to God with them all the time. I could easily go to the team and like talk about it with guys at the team or like I always had another place to vent my issues or sort of instead of going to God and asking him to take care of me, you know. And then it wasn't until that point, you know, when I was in there, I had literally no one. So I went to my cell and I, I mean, it took, that was like the big turning point for me during this whole story was, I mean, it took all of that to be taken from me to actually turn to God a hundred percent. And just knowing I didn't have control, which, you know, it's, it's sort of crappy to say, but that's, that's the truth, you know? And I, I realized that, you know, I was just a, 
like I said, and they're like a Christian through convenience uh, only. And so to be able to like relinquish everything to him and mean it, say it out loud. And that's the most important thing is I said it out loud. It's not just something I thought. I said it out loud in myself, which I gave it so much more meaning. And then I, I mean, and I can't emphasize this enough. I literally felt his presence, like take it off my shoulders. I mean, and that right there. And that's why I wanted to put that in there because it's not, it's not a, you know, joke. It's not, I'm not embellishing anything that actually happened. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, Christ is real and God is real. He'll take care of you as long as you, you know, completely have a hundred percent faith in him um, and not to question anything that happens. Well, I think that that's important thing for our listeners to hear, because obviously this is a majority Christian audience, but we do have a lot of non-Christians that listen to this just because of the type of content that we talk about. And, you know, when you hear someone like you or like, you know, our mutual buddy, Eddie Penny, talk about the world that you're in, but seeing God in it, uh, that's kind of a common refrain that you hear from people that are in the community that are in the teams is that they're a men of all faiths that are, that are a part of that. Right. And I think it's important to keep your faith in those moments because that is what will get you through. Cause even the people that don't have faith, I, I forget who it was that I was talking to a while back. Oh, it was Ephraim Matos. Um, and he was basically talking about how there were people saying that they're doing good overseas, but these were atheists. Right. And so it's like, you would have to ask that person, what is good? Because in order to know what good is, you have to know what evil is. There has to be some sort of a moral law with which to differentiate between those two things and who gave us the moral law, right? It always kind of comes back to God. Why are you doing the right thing? It's because God is telling me to do that, yeah. right? Why, why would you ever put yourself in that sacrificial situation? Because Jesus sacrificed for me, right? It, it all kind of goes back to those areas. So uh, we'll get out of kind of uh, the, the world of faith and all that. We'll stop. I'll stop preaching. I do want to get in our final moments here. I want to talk about a few things that you're doing because obviously you're not just slinging books. You are. Uh, you have a lot of products that you're putting out there. So you've got a uh, partnership that with Precision Tactical. So you got Seek Battle Rifles that are out there. You got a pistol out there. You got some Nux, which are awesome. Uh, you got t-shirts you got all kinds of things so why don't you walk us through that partnership and kind of why you wanted to get into that community uh sure so we um you know we live here uh near destin and uh we wanted to help out get in business people here locally and help out local businesses this place is uh very uh all they're they're all about local businesses and keeping those mm -hmm. going and especially during the time last year uh with during yeah. quarantine and all that so i i was going up to this store uh, to just to buy some accessories for the guns that I had, um, ended up, we ended up connecting with the, uh, owner Ward Lewis and we sort of came to an agreement. Like he's like, you know, we can build a rifle, you pick out all the parts and we'll make it your rifle. Um, I was definitely uh, hesitant. She, she was all, you know, like we're doing this. Um, and so <laughs> I'm the business. She is. Mine. Yeah. 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 But, uh, it, you know, it ended up being, it's an awesome thing. You know, we built this rifle, we have a 14 and a half inch and a 10 and a half inch. Um, and we just came out with the, um, seat battle pistol, which is, uh, the Glock or well, the Glock 19 X that's coming out uh, next week. And then the end, you know, the big, the, uh, the idea is to get a, a whole SOT mod kit. So mm -hmm. be able to sell like upper, lower, pistol and then also have some accessories like the brass knuckles in there um but you know we're working with this company because they're a local company and it we want to help you know if we can help them out or do you know they're helping us out as well you know that's that's what we're all about 
Well, everything looks awesome, guys. I'll make sure that you have a link in the show notes so you can go and check those things out for yourself. And it's great that you have, I didn't realize you were going to be expanding into other areas. So I know a lot of guys are going to be paying attention to that, but this is going to end up being my last question for the day, because this was another thing that was just nagging at me the whole time that I was reading this book, because I've been following you on social media for a while. So you kind of show the family and you know, the, the, the dog, you know, which I did think was funny as a little side note that didn't one of the people say that you were like intimidating the witnesses by like walking your like French bulldogs past their houses. It's like, of all yeah of all the intimidating animals to walk past another person's house i don't know that the french the french bulldog would be on that list but as i was looking at social media and everything i, I kept seeing your son ryan which is he is he nine now 10 how old's ryan oh, no, he's gonna be 12 he's gonna be next. 12 oh geez 12 yeah. you know what math was never my strong suit so you know he's 12 years old but let's say that ryan sits you down one day sits the both of you down uh maybe he's 16 17 and he says mom dad i want to be just like dad was I want to be a Navy SEAL. Okay. So, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, you don't hold any grudges against U.S. military, but with everything that your family has endured, right? Not at the hands of the enemy, mind you, but at the hands of your own military, your own government, the people that are supposed to have your back. What would you say to Ryan if he told you that? Uh, well, it's, that's an easy question to answer because he's already, he tells me that every other week that he still wants to be, uh, he wants to be a Navy SEAL. And I, you know, I, I tell him the same thing as that's, I'm, I support him 100%. Um, you know, I, I was proud of the 20 years that I did. I I got to work among just giants, this amazing individuals that I wouldn't have had the chance to work with if I hadn't have gone into that that profession. I mean, I'm the I was I would my uh, career was privileged. You know, I was privileged to be able to go to combat. I was privileged to be able to go with these men that I went with. And if my son wanted to fall in that same path, I would definitely be a hundred percent behind him. You know, there's going to be ebbs and flows, you know, and everything, you know, and right now, yeah, it's not looking too great in the community, but I know that the community is going to fix itself. And mm-hmm. that's because of the guys that are in it. Um, and they'll, they'll go back to the way it was. And I, I would be proud if my son, you know, wanted to join that. But at the same time, I don't want to push him into that either. Like that's his right. choice. And I told him, if that's what he wants to do, then he's going to have to work for it and earn it on his own because that's, there's not something that you can uh, sit there and coach someone to go do. It's, it has to be, it's all up here and you have to want to do it. Right. What about you, mom? Yeah. I mean, ultimately for us, you know, we have three kids. Each of them is very unique and different. And I think our whole goal has just been to encourage them to pursue whatever passion that they have. So our oldest son is like into chemistry and astrophysics. Our daughter is going into nursing. And then our youngest son, who is the carbon copy of like him and then half me. So it's like, oh my gosh, oh, yeah. we'll see what happens with him. But um, he, you know, we would encourage our kids no matter what, because at the end of the day, you know, God is in control. And I, it's it's so funny. We talk about um his grandma and mom and they always just used to worry and worry and worry when he was away and I would talk to his grandma and I'm like grandma it's okay like he's one of those people if there's a burning building he's not gonna run away he's gonna run to it it's Mm -hmm. how he's made and if we take that away from him he'll just slowly start to die inside so it's like (laughs) you know I think you have to just like put your faith in God trust that like yes we are very blessed and very fortunate obviously we went through a horrific ordeal but we have so many friends that have lost loved ones and Mm -hmm. um you know 
we have to honor those people every day. And that's why we do what we do. And we would never discourage our kids from joining the military. And I believe that, um, you know, it takes strong individuals and people with strong character to serve and sacrifice in the way that he and uh, that community has. And so, no, we have nothing but the utmost of respect um, for, for anyone who serves in any branch of our armed services. And then we also have a nonprofit that stands behind those people um, that get into these types of situations, um, have injustices that happen. So before he even exited the military, we founded and started the process of creating the Pipe Hitter Foundation. So if people want to look into that, his website has all of the things that we do at theeddygallagher.com. And then there's also a link to the Pipe Hitter Foundation. So we support service members, police and first responders and their families um, when they're going through hard trip, hard hardships basically um so yeah that's another big emphasis that we want to push forward and focus on and just encourage our kids service is a part of our family whether it's through that giving back through the nonprofit, working with veteran um, organizations and and we're very blessed with the partnerships that we have so we'll, we'll see what happens you, you can never tell with these kids yeah, <laughs> yeah. well oh, i really appreciate that answer and and also we'll make sure that you guys have all the information there so if you want to support that foundation you can have that there it'll be in the show notes but thank you all very much for spending this amount of time with us to really get into the details and for the last time today we couldn't go into all the details. There's so much details in this book. It's 400 plus pages. It was a great read. Guys, you're literally on the edge of your seat trying to figure out what's going to happen, even though you know what's going to happen. So it's one of those types of stories. But that's all for me. Is there anything else that either one of you want to get off your chest? No, brother. I appreciate you having this on. Thank you for buying and reading the book, man. I yeah, appreciate that. It's awesome. Um, the story. All right. Eddie and Andrea Gallagher, thanks for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, guys, as always, thanks so much for listening to the end of the interview. I really enjoyed my time with them. Getting to see it from both of their perspectives, I think, was really interesting, and we had a lot of time to go over a lot of those details. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and don't forget to share this around. All right, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness, and specifically, we do that by providing content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got a link to the book. Again, the book is The Man in the Arena from Fighting ISIS to fighting for my freedom. We've also got a link to Eddie's website so you can check out a bunch of the stuff he's doing, including Seek Battle Rifles. And then also I've got a link to his Instagram account. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just hit me up via email at info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Check us out on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. We also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording off their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember... Keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.